Welcome and thank you for joining the Wells Fargo third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star 1. If you would like to withdraw your question, press star 2. Please note that today's call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the call over to John Campbell, Director of Investor Relations. Sir, you may begin the conference. Thank you, Brad. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining our call today where our CEO, Charlie Scharf, and our CFO, Mike Fanamissimo, will discuss third quarter results and answer your questions. This call is being recorded. Before we get started, I would like to remind you that our third quarter earnings materials, including the release, financial supplement, and presentation deck, are available on our website at wellsfargo.com. I'd also like to caution you that we may make forward-looking statements during today's call that are subject to risks and uncertainties. Factors that may cause actual results to differ materially from expectations are detailed in our SEC filing, including the Form 8K filed today containing our earnings materials. Information about any non-GAAP financial measures referenced, including a reconciliation of those measures to GAAP measures, can also be found in our SEC filings and the earnings materials available on our website. I will now turn the call over to Charlie. Thanks, John, and good morning, everyone. I'll make some brief comments about our third quarter results, the operating environment, and update you on our priorities. I'll then turn the call over to Mike to review third quarter results in more detail before we take your questions. Let me start with some third quarter highlights. We are in $5.1 billion, or $1.17 per common share, in the third quarter. These results included a $1.7 billion decrease in the allowance for credit losses as credit quality continued to improve. Revenue declined on lower gains from equity securities, which were elevated in the second quarter, though still strong. Expenses continued to decline, reflecting progress on our efficiency initiatives, and included $250 million associated with the September OCC enforcement action. And for the first time since first quarter 2020, we grew both period end loans and deposits in the third quarter. We continue to see that our customers have significant liquidity and consumers are continuing to spend. While lower than the peak in March, our consumer customers' median deposit balances continue to remain above pre-pandemic levels, up 48% for customers who received federal stimulus and 40 I'm sorry, up 48% for customers who received federal stimulus and 40% higher for those who did not receive federal aid. Weekly debit card spend during the third quarter was up every week compared to 2019, and in the week ending October 1st was up 14% compared to 2020 and 26% compared to 2019. Areas hardest hit by the pandemic have recovered, including travel up 2%, entertainment up 39%, and restaurant spending up 20% during the week ending October 1st compared with 2019. Consumer credit card spending activity continued to increase up 18% in the third quarter compared to 2019 and 24% compared to 2020. During the week ended October 1st, travel-related spending, which was hardest hit during the pandemic, was up significantly from 2020 but remains the only category that has not yet fully rebounded to 2019 levels, still down 8% compared to 2019. Commercial banking loans were up slightly at the end of the third quarter, while line utilization was stable at historic lows. 
supply chain difficulties and labor shortages continue to represent significant challenges for our client base. And as I said earlier, overall credit performance continued to be strong. Now let me update you on the progress we've made on our strategic priorities. First, building an appropriate risk and control infrastructure has been and remains Wells Fargo's top priority. We reached a significant milestone with the termination of the CFPB consent order issued in September 2016 regarding improper retail sales practices. Its expiration reflects years of hard work by employees across Wells Fargo intended to ensure that the conduct at the core of the CFPB order will not recur. As a reminder, this is the second important regulatory milestone we achieved this year with the OCC terminating a consent order related to our BSA AML compliance program in January. But the recent OCC actions are a reminder that the significant deficiencies that existed when I arrived must remain our top priority. I believe we're making meaningful progress and I remain confident in our ability to close the remaining gaps over the next several years. Having said that, it continues to be the case that we are likely to have setbacks along the way. We are a different bank today than we were several years ago. We run the company with greater oversight, transparency, and operational disciplines. We have a new leadership team. 15 of 18 operating committee members are now new to their roles. I've spoken of our new leaders in many of our control functions, but we also have many new business leaders. This includes new leaders in consumer banking, small business banking, auto lending, home lending, credit card, merchant services, retail services and personal lending, digital, strategy, wealth and investment management, and commercial banking. Our control infrastructure is different and we continue to invest in it. We take a different approach to the consumer today. We created a sales practice oversight and management function and an office of consumer practices. Our approach to consumer remediation is dramatically different as we have meaningfully increased the amount paid to consumers and have accelerated payments to customers. While we are committed to devoting the resources necessary to our risk and regulatory work, we are also focused on improving the products and services we offer. We're making investments in digital capabilities and making it easier for customers to do business with us. In the third quarter, we announced our new long-term digital infrastructure strategy that will move us to a multi-cloud environment. This is a critical step in our multi-year journey to be digital first and offer easier to use products and services. We also joined AutoFi's North American network to provide car buyers and dealers with fast and easy online sales and financing. And as I've spoken about previously, we're on track to roll out a new consumer mobile app at the beginning of next year. We've also been making significant enhancements to our payments capabilities and are seeing that momentum pull through in our customers' Zelle usage, with Zelle users increasing 24%, transactions up 50%, and volumes are up 56% from a year ago. We're executing on our work to simplify our products and build compelling offerings tailored to different customer segments. Clear Access, our no-fee overdraft checking product, now has over 1 million outstanding customer accounts. As a reminder, this launched in September 2020. And all of our retail accounts, which receive ACH direct deposit, have our overdraft rewind feature, which automatically reevaluates transactions from the prior business day that have incurred an overdraft. This feature has helped over 1.3 million customers
overdraft-related fees on 2.5 million transactions in the third quarter. For the emerging affluent and affluent segments, we're making substantial changes to more consistently and intentionally serve these customers, including products, service, marketing, and management routines. You'll hear us talk more about how we're executing on this in the coming quarters. After successfully launching Active Cash, our new cashback credit card in July, earlier this month we launched the Reflect card that rewards customers for making on-time payments. Our new head of small business, Derek Ellington, will start in just a couple of days, and we believe this is another attractive growth segment for us. Next month, Paul Camp will be joining Wells Fargo as the head of our global treasury management businesses. This new role brings together our treasury management and global payment solutions teams into one organization, which will enable us to be more efficient and leverage our capabilities more effectively to help clients manage their funds and process payments worldwide. While we've been focused on improving the products and services we offer to our customers, we've continued to support our communities. We voluntarily committed to donate all gross processing fees from PPP loans funded in 2020 and created the Open for Business Fund to support small businesses impacted by the pandemic. We've now donated $305 million in support of small business recovery, including 215 CDFIs, which in turn is expected to help nearly 150,000 small business owners maintain more than 250,000 jobs. Additionally, in the third quarter, we launched Connect to More, a resource hub for women-owned businesses and a mentoring program partnering with NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center to empower 500 women-owned businesses. We committed to invest $5 million through the Neighborhood Lift Program to help more than 300 low- and moderate-income residents in Philadelphia with home down payment assistance. And we published our updated ESG report and goals and performance data which includes new disclosures on our workforce by race, gender, and job category. As we look forward, while there certainly are risks that remain, including the latest wave of COVID infections, the recent U.S. fiscal policy stalemate and inflation concerns, the outlook for the economy is promising. Consumers' financial condition remains strong with leverage at its lowest level in 45 years and the debt burden below its long-term average. Companies are also strong as well. We remain on target to achieve a sustainable 10% ROTCE, subject to the same assumptions we've discussed in the past on a run rate basis at some point next year, and we'll then discuss our plan to continue to increase returns. I want to thank our employees for continuing to work hard to make Wells Fargo better for our customers, shareholders, and communities. I will now turn the call over to Mike. Thanks, Charlie, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Charlie summarized how we're helping our customers and communities on slide two, so I'm going to start with our third quarter financial results on slide three. Net income for the quarter was $5.1 billion, or $1.17 per common share. Our results included a $1.7 billion decrease in the allowance for credit losses. This is reflective of the continuing improvement in credit performance and the economic recovery. Pre-tax pre-provision profit grew from a year ago as lower revenue, driven by a decline in net interest income, was more than offset by lower expenses. We continue to execute on our efficiency initiatives, which has helped improve the expense run rate, and as Charlie highlighted, the third quarter included $250 million in operating losses associated with the September OCC enforcement action. 
non-interest income was relatively stable from a year ago. Within that, equity gains declined from the second quarter, but increased $220 million from a year ago, predominantly due to our affiliated venture capital and private equity businesses. We also had an increase in investment advisory and other asset-based fees from a year ago, as well as in card, deposit-related, and investment banking fees. These increases were more than offset by declines in other areas, including lower, lower mortgage banking revenue and lower markets revenue in corporate investment banking. Our effective income tax rate in the third quarter was 22.9%. Our CET1 ratio declined to 11.6% in the third quarter as we repurchased $5.3 billion of common stock. As a reminder, our regulatory minimum will be 9.1% in the first quarter of 2022, reflecting a lower GSIB capital surcharge. Additionally, under the stress capital buffer framework, we have flexibility to increase capital distributions, and it's possible we will be able to repurchase more than the $18 billion included in our capital plan over the four-quarter period, depending on market conditions and other risk factors, including COVID-related risks. Turning to credit quality on slide five, our net loan charge-off ratio was 12 basis points in the quarter. Commercial credit performance continued to improve and net loan charge-offs declined 42 million from the second quarter to three basis points. The improvement was broad-based and included modest net recoveries in our energy portfolio and in commercial real estate. The commercial real estate portfolio has continued to perform well. The recovery in retail and hotel properties reflected increased liquidity and improved valuations. While we have not seen any widespread stress in office, we continue to watch this sector closely and believe that any impact as a result of return to office or hybrid working plans will take time to play out. Consumer credit performance also continued to improve with strong collateral values for homes and autos and consumer cash reserves remaining above pre-pandemic levels. Net loan charge-offs declined $80 million from the second quarter to 23 basis points. We continue to have net recoveries in our consumer real estate portfolios and losses in both credit card and auto declined. Non-performing assets declined $321 million, or 4%, from the second quarter, driven by lower commercial non-accruals with declines across all asset types. Energy was the largest driver given significant improvement in fundamentals on the back of higher commodity prices. Our allowance level at the end of the third quarter reflected continued strong credit performance, the continuing economic recovery, and the uncertainties that still remain. If current economic trends continue, we would expect to have additional reserve releases. On slide six, we highlight loans and deposits. Average loans were relatively stable from the second quarter, with a decline in residential mortgage loans largely offset by modest growth in in most of our consumer and commercial portfolios. Total period end of loans grew for the first time since the first quarter of 2020 and were up $10.5 billion from the second quarter with growth in commercial and industrial loans, auto, other consumer, credit card, and commercial real estate. Average deposits increased $51.9 billion, or 4%, from a year ago, with growth in our consumer businesses and commercial banking, partially offset by continued declines in corporate investment banking and corporate treasury, reflecting targeted actions to manage under the asset cap. Turning to net interest income on slide seven, 
Net interest income grew $109 million, or 1% from the second quarter, and was down $470 million, or 5% from a year ago. The decrease from a year ago was driven by lower loan balances and the impact of lower yields on earning assets, partially offset by decline in long-term debt and lower premium amortization on our mortgage-backed securities. We had $20 billion of loans we purchased out of mortgage-backed securities, or EPBOs, at the end of the third quarter, down $4 billion from the second quarter. These loans do contribute to net interest income, and we expect these EPBO loan balances to, to decline substantially by the end of 2022. At the end of the third quarter, we also had $4.7 billion of PPP loans outstanding, and we expect the balances to steadily decline over the next several quarters and to be under a billion by the end of next year. We continue to expect net interest income to be near the bottom of our initial guidance range of flat to down 4% from the annualized fourth quarter 2020 level of $36.8 billion for the full year. Turning to expenses on slide 8, non-interest expense declined 13% from a year ago. The decrease was driven by lower restructuring charges and operating losses and the progress we've made on our efficiency initiatives. During the first nine months of this year, these initiatives have helped to drive a 16% decline in professional and outside services expense by reducing our spend on consultants and contractors, an 8% reduction in occupancy costs by reducing the number of locations, including branches and offices. Occupancy costs have also declined from lower COVID-19-related costs, and a 5% decline in salaries expense by eliminating management layers and increasing expansion controls across the organization and optimizing branch staffing. Now let me provide some specific examples of progress we're making on some of the initiatives. We are continuing to work on reducing the underlying costs to run our consumer banking business. The pandemic accelerated customer migration, customer migration to digital, which continue with mobile logons up 14% in the third quarter from a year ago. While teller transactions were flat from a year ago, they were over 30% lower than pre-pandemic levels as transactions have migrated ATMs and mobile. Over the past year, we've reduced our number of branches by 433, or 8%, and lowered headcount in branch banking by 23%. We continue to focus on generating efficiencies in our branches and have a number of initiatives designed to further reduce expenses, including reducing cash handling time and simplifying certain branch processes. Wealth and investment management has had strong increases in revenue-related compensation However, by executing on efficiency initiatives, non-revenue-related expenses in the third quarter declined 6% from a year ago, and non-advisor headcount was down 10% from a year ago. We have aligned our wealth management business under eight divisional leaders, creating better coordination and efficiency. We have also implemented a more efficient client service model across all distribution channels and have reduced total square footage by rationalizing our real estate footprint. Corporate and investment banking has continued to make progress on various efficiency initiatives, these efforts include reducing headcount supporting products, regions, or sectors with low levels of market activity and opportunity, optimizing operations and support teams, vendor optimization and insourcing, and reducing spend on contractors and consultants. We're also working on initiatives and centralized functions, including operations, where we have realized savings from location optimization, lower third-party spending by eliminating consulting arrangements and consolidating vendors. The operations group has also reduced spans and layers with savings coming from eliminating manager roles. Automation efforts and strategy enhancements have driven process improvements while reducing costs in many areas, including fraud management and card collections. 
We've also been working on additional opportunities through technology enablement that have longer lead times but should result in benefits that we expect will reduce operations-related expenses over time. With three quarters of actual results uh, already, our current outlook for 2021 expenses, excluding restructuring charges, and the cost of business exits is approximately $53.5 billion. Note that we had $193 million of restructuring charges and cost of business exits during the first nine months of the year. This outlook includes an expectation of higher operating losses and higher revenue-related expenses than we assumed earlier in the year. Our expense outlook also assumes a full year of expenses related to Wells Fargo Asset Management and our corporate trust services business, uh, and we expect these sales to close during the fourth quarter. We will update you on the expense impact of these initiatives after they close. As mentioned, the outlook accounts for the fact that we expect full-year operating losses to be approximately $250 million higher than our assumptions at the beginning of the year. This includes approximately a billion dollars of operating losses incurred during the first nine months of the year, and our outlook assumes $250 million of operating losses in the fourth quarter. Just a reminder that operating losses can be lumpy and unpredictable, especially as we continue to address the significant work needed to satisfy our regulatory requirements. Our current outlook also assumes revenue-related compensation will be approximately a billion dollars this year, which is higher than the $500 million we assumed at the beginning of the year. Strong equity markets have driven revenue-related expenses, which is a good thing, as the associated revenue more than offsets any increase in expenses. Now turning to our business segment, starting with consumer banking and lending on slide nine. Consumer and small business banking revenue increased 2% from a year ago, primarily due to an increase in consumer activity, including higher debit card transactions and lower COVID-related fee waivers. Home lending revenue declined 20% from a year ago, primarily due to a decline in mortgage banking income driven by lower gain on sale margins, origination volumes, and servicing fees. Net interest income also declined driven by lower loan balances, these declines were partially offset by higher gains from the resecurization of loans we purchased from mortgage-backed securities last year. Credit card revenue was up 4% from a year ago, driven by increased spending and lower customer accommodations and fee waivers in response to the pandemic. Auto revenue increased 10% from a year ago and higher loan balances. Turning to some key business drivers on slide 10. Our mortgage originations declined 2% from the second quarter, with correspondent originations growing 2%, which was more than offset by a 5% decline in retail. We currently expect our fourth quarter originations to decline modestly given the recent increase in mortgage rates and the typical seasonal trends in the purchase market. Despite strong consumer demand for autos, inventory shortages are putting downward pressure on industry sales and driving higher prices. The competitive environment has remained relatively stable and, we, and we've had our second consecutive quarter of record originations with volume up 70% from a year ago. Turning to debit card, transactions were relatively stable from the second quarter and up 11% from a year ago with increases across nearly all categories. We had strong growth in new credit card accounts up 63% from the second quarter, driven by the launch of our new active cash card. Credit card point of sale purchase volume was up 24% from a year ago and 4% from the second quarter. While payment rates remain high, average balances grew 3% from the second quarter, the first time balances have grown since the fourth quarter of 2020. Turning to commercial banking results in slide 11, middle market banking revenue declined 3% from a year ago, primarily due to lower loan balances and lower interest rates, which were partially offset by higher deposit balances and deposit-related fees. 
Asset-based lending and leasing revenue declined 12% from a year ago, driven by lower loan balances and lower lease income. Non-interest expense declined 14% from a year ago, primarily driven by lower salaries and consulting expense due to efficiency initiatives as well as lower lease expense. After declining for four consecutive quarters, average loans stabilized in the third quarter, line utilizations remained low, and loan demand continued to be impacted by low client inventory levels and strong client cash positions. However, there was some increase in demand late in the quarter, and period end balances increased $1.6 billion, or 1% from the second quarter. Turning to corporate investment banking on slide 12, in banking, total revenue increased 12% from a year ago. This growth was driven by higher advisory and equity origination fees and an increase in loan balances partially offset by lower deposit balances, predominantly due to actions taken to manage under the asset cap. Commercial real estate revenue grew 10% from a year ago, driven by higher commercial servicing income, loan balances, and capital markets results in stronger commercial gain-on-sale volumes and margins and higher underwriting fees. Markets revenue declined 15% from a year ago, driven by lower trading activity across most asset classes, primarily due to market conditions. Non-interest expense declined 10% from a year ago, primarily driven by reduced operations expense due to efficiency initiatives. Wealth and investment management uh, revenue on slide 13 grew 10% from a year ago. A decline in net interest income due to lower lower interest rates was more than offset by higher asset-based fees, primarily due to higher market valuations. Revenue-related compensation drove the increase in non-interest expense from a year ago. I highlighted earlier the progress we've made on efficiency initiatives to reduce non-revenue-related expenses, including salaries and occupancy expense. Client assets increased 13% from a year ago, primarily driven by higher market valuations. Average deposits were up 4% from a year ago, and average loans increased 5% from a year ago, driven by continued momentum in securities-based lending. And then slide 14 highlights our corporate results. Revenue declined from a year ago, driven by lower net interest income, primarily due to the sale of our student loan portfolio and lower non-interest income, due to lower gains on the sale of securities in our investment portfolio. The decline in revenue from the second quarter was primarily driven by lower equity gains from our affiliated venture capital and private equity businesses. And expenses included the $250 million operating loss associated with the OCC enforcement action in September. With that, we will now take your questions. At this time, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please first unmute your phone and then press star 1. Please record your name at the prompt. If at any time your question has been answered, you may press star 2 to withdraw your question from the question queue. Once again, please press star 1 and record your name if you would like to ask a question at this time. Please stand by for our first questions. Our first question will come from Scott Seifers of Piper Sandler. Your line is open. Morning. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I guess was, was hoping you could um, sort of address the cost outlook. I certainly appreciate the commentary regarding the fourth quarter in particular. You know, I think as we look forward, you guys have had um, the uh, expectation that costs could come down year over year for the next couple of years. I mean, that, that of course puts you guys in a, in a very unique position vis-a-vis many of your peers. Um, but you know, so many people are talking about things like wage inflation. Right now, I'm just uh, curious, you know, to to what degree are you seeing that, and, and more importantly, is there enough flexibility in your existing outlook such that even despite higher wage pressures, uh, you could still see costs down year over year for the next couple of years? 
Sure. This is, this is Charlie. Thanks for the question. Um, I guess let me, let me start with uh, 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 the wage inflation. I think, you know, we, we certainly are seeing um, wage inflation. I would say it's very different across different parts of the company and very different across different job categories that we have. Uh, and so as we approach it, we're trying to be very thoughtful about um, ensuring that we're continuing to be as fair with people as we can be, as well as paying competitively. Um, we actually are making uh, awards to people in our branches, um, which equate to roughly $2.50 an hour uh, from the beginning of October through the end of the year um, to thank them for what they're doing, but also address the competitiveness that exists out there and we're evaluating what makes sense for the longer term. And in places of the company where we do see uh, uh, wage pressure, we're acting accordingly. But I would not say that it's something that we see everywhere across the entire company in every single job. Um, but we're certainly prepared for it and uh, look at it very, very regularly as we look at uh, things like attrition and whatnot. Um, to the broader question, I think, you know, first of all, we're in the middle of doing our budgets now, as I'm sure you hear from everyone when they, you know, when they do these calls at this time of year. Uh, our, our goal is still the same uh, that we've said in the past, which is we still would like to see net reductions in the overall expense base. Uh, we are in a unique position in that, um, I would say, in two ways. Uh, first of all, we do have, uh, you know, the significant amount that we're spending on regulatory orders and we're not assuming that we get efficiencies out of that um, in the near future. But one day when, we're, when we've built uh, all that's required, that will be an opportunity for us, but that's not even on the radar screen for us right now. Um, but we still have just tremendous um, excess expenses across the company. Uh, you can see it in headcount. You can see it in efficiency ratios across the businesses. Um, and, you know, I've, what I found here is the same thing I think that uh, Mike and I have seen at a lot of other places, which is it's like peeling an onion back. You think you see what's, uh, uh, what's incredibly clear. Uh, once you actually get rid of those inefficiencies, you then start to see the next level. And um, it becomes part of the culture, and we engage the entire company uh, in moving that way. So uh, we still think that they're, uh, you know, extremely meaningful uh, efficiencies uh, that uh, we can pursue for quite some time here, um, which, will, which, which, we, which hopefully will both allow us to have net reductions but also invest appropriately, whether it's in technology or products, which, you know, as we said, we're extremely focused on as well. Perfect. Thank you very much. And then I was hoping, um, Mike, you might be able to expand on a comment you made about loan growth um, or, excuse me, loan demand improving later in the quarter. There seems to be a little bit of a a divergence emerging between the kind of demand we're seeing at, say, smaller and middle market companies, for instance, versus what we're seeing with larger corporates that might have better access to the capital markets. Curious if you could just provide a little more color on where you're seeing that improved demand, please. Yeah, you know, and, and, I, and I assume we will see some divergence across different, um, you know, some of the peers as you sort of look at this. But if you, if you look at the, you know, commercial bank uh, as an example, um, we're actually seeing uh, the the demand and the pipeline build in, in kind of the middle and upper end of the client base with a little bit less of demand uh, emerging so far on the lower end, um, uh, which uh, which I know is, is counter to, to what you uh, – the way you asked the question, but I think that's what we're seeing right now. Um, 
and and I think in part that's because the the you know the the clients in the lower end of our uh, our client base still have a lot of ex- excess liquidity, and they're still dealing with you know supply chain crunches and and other issues that are sort of impacting their their need for um, liquidity, their need for credit. Um, and so I think you know, and I think that'll you know we'll we'll start to see more demand I think more consistently across the client base over time as things play out. But that's what we're seeing in the commercial bank. I think when you look more broadly. Uh, and you look at the consumer side, you know, we, we, we have seen balances grow in auto. We've seen them in card. When you look through the home lending, uh, you know, data that, that we give you, we are seeing growth in our, in our kind of core non-conforming mortgage book as well. Uh, that's offset to, to by, uh, by, by the declines in, you know, in these, in these loans that we bought out from um, securities last year. Uh, but we are seeing some growth there too. Um, and then you see some growth in the, commercial, in the corporate investment bank. You know, and that and that's really you know a little bit of a lot of things happening across the uh, the corporate investment bank, whether it's real estate, subscription finance, and other other sectors that are really driving uh, some of that growth. And so, I, I, you know, again, it's still relatively modest so far in terms of what we've seen, and I and I think it'll take you know some more time for it to really play out in a more meaningful way. Uh, but it's encouraging to to start to see at least a little bit you know manifest so far. And I would just encourage you to make sure that you look at the period end balances as well as the averages because, you know, which, you know, it, it, get, it, it certainly gets to the heart of the question. And then just one final thing I'll say on this, which is um, we're, not, um, uh, we're not stretching in any way in terms of credit uh, or pricing or things like that to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to try and get to a result. Um, we're continuing to have the same disciplines that we've always had, and it's going to be a question of, our balances are rising because of greater customer activity. That's terrific. Thank you guys very much. The next question comes from Ken Houston of Jeffries. Your line is open. Hey guys, thanks. Good, uh, good, good, good morning. Um, just wondering, Mike, if you could just talk a little bit about just some of the ins and outs um, underneath NII outside from you know balance sheet movements, meaning. Yeah, you saw a little bit of increase in premium M. Um, can you just remind us, like, how that mechanism works in terms of what rates need to do to have a ongoing improvement there? And um, w- w- are you at the point or how close are you to the point where your incremental purchases or replacements on the securities book are, you know, getting closer to uh, what's rolling off? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Um, you know, I think when you think about premium amortization, I think I think you said it backwards, but like we're getting a benefit from premium amortization coming down in the quarter, and you saw that in our results is you know roughly 90 million dollars, a little bit maybe a couple couple uh, bucks less, but um, and so we expect you know as we've been saying we expect that to continue to you know come down. I think it'll be somewhat gradual um, as we look at the next uh, couple quarters. You're not going to see big you know, big step downs. I think it'll come down, you know, again in the fourth quarter, maybe a little less than we saw from the second to the third quarter. Um, and, you know, as rates, you know, as you've seen over the last, you know, three months, rates have been a little all over the place. And so it's a it's a bit of a function of where, you know, where mortgage rates are, and there's a little bit of a lag to uh, to it as, as it comes through uh, the data. So, but we still expect the general trajectory to be coming down on premium amortization. It's just a matter of, you know exactly how fast um, and, and over what time period that'll that'll happen. Um, you know, I think on the, the the second part of the question, what was the second part again, Ken? The just, just about you know reinvestment rates versus the underlying portfolio on the securities book. 
Yeah, no, and, and, and again, I, even on that, I, you know, I, I keep reminding people as you sort of look at, you know, the, the, the third quarter and, you know, rates were much, much lower than they are today for most of the second quarter. And so really, you know, we've seen them rally at the, at the tail end of the quarter and, and kind of stabilize to come down slightly, um, you know, since then over, over the last, uh, you know, week uh, or so. Um, and I, and so that that you know that gap is closing obviously in terms of what's rolling off and and you know getting closer to kind of the overall average in the portfolio, uh, but but we still have a little ways to go to um, you know for for rates to uh, for reinvestment rates to match sort of what's rolling out of the portfolio. Okay, got it. And just last quick one, just long-term debt, you've been meaningfully reducing the footprint um, and, and helped by the mix improving on the balance sheet. Just how much more of an opportunity is that to uh, continue to lower the long-term debt footprint and reduce the cost of it? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. And, you know, I, you know, I think our constraint is going to be TLAC, you know, how much TLAC we have to hold. Um, and, you know, I think you can probably model that out a little bit. So we have a little bit more room uh, to go to continue to optimize the mix here and bring uh, you know, the long-term debt down, um, you know, but it's likely at some point, uh, so it's likely, you know, at some point next year that'll, that'll start to change. The next question comes from Stephen Chuback of Wolf Research. Your line is open. Hi, good afternoon. So I um, wanted to ask a follow-up on, uh, you know, Ken's last line of questioning around the uh, NII outlook. And if I take all the different component pieces that you just, uh, that you mentioned and just throw it in the blender. So uh, more constructive loan growth commentary, some modest but steady premium and benefit, but still some reinvestment headwinds. Is it reasonable to expect that you can grow NII versus the lower end of the guidance range for 21? And separately, what's your appetite to deploy excess liquidity, just given your excess reserves parked at the Fed, at least as a percentage of the overall balance sheet, um, is still quite elevated relative to many of your peers. Yeah, maybe I'll start with the second one and I'll come back to the, the first part, Steve. And, um, you know, as we think about, you know, redeployment, you know, we're still being, you know, pretty patient. And, and as, I, as I just mentioned to Ken's question, you know, you look at what's been happening over the last, you know, few months. You know, rates were much lower. They've rallied recently. You know, at the same time, you know, the basis between treasuries and mortgages is actually compressed a bit, so made them a little bit, you know, relatively more more expensive. And so, you know, I think so. We're and if, if you look at what's happening in in you know inflation and with tapering coming, and you know, we still think that you know there, that there's more uh, risk to upside on rates than there is downside at this point. And so, we're still being patient as we sort of look at our um, our redeployment there. Um, and when opportunities, you know, present themselves, we'll, we'll take advantage of them. And, you know, we did that a little bit at, at you know, right at the end of uh, the third quarter where we accelerated, you know, some purchases that we were making given, you know, the, the, the spike and the rally that we saw there. And so we'll continue to do that, but we're, we're going we're gonna to be patient as we, as we see how things develop over the coming months. You know, as you sort of think about the range uh, for the full year, you know, we've been giving a range for a reason, right, because there's a lot of moving pieces, right, and there's still, you know, a few months to play out. Um, and I think if we, you know, obviously see, you know, you know, faster loan growth than we expect, that'll be a positive. If we see rates, you know, uh, move a little bit higher than what the forward curve has, that'll be, you know, positive. We have, you know, we still have to, you know, just to keep up with, you know, where the securities portfolio, we have a lot of purchases to make in the fourth quarter. And so we're, you know, where rates, you know, end up throughout will be important. 
Um, and then on the margin, there's things like PPP and other factors that sort of drive drive that, and that'll be determined based on you know the the client forgiveness uh, trends that we see in our uh, in our client base. So I think um, you know there are, there are scenarios where you know we could be a little bit better than what we what we uh, uh, projected there, and there's some scenarios where we could be a little bit worse depending on how all those factors play out. Well, that's great, Peller. Thanks for taking my question. Thank you. The next question will come from John McDonald of Autonomous Research. Your line is open. Hi. I wanted to follow up on the expenses. Um, you know, when we think about the aspiration for expenses to be down uh, next year and understanding that you're going through budgeting and that's, you know, a goal right now, Mike, is that, can we think of it as that's your goal kind of relative to the 53 and a half and wouldn't include help from the business exits? Yeah, John. No, I, I think we, you know, we've we think about the business exits just separate from you know the core efficiency we're driving, and you know, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, you know, if you, you know, if we think that there's going to be a savings of you know X dollars as these businesses roll off, you know, take the 53 and a half and subtract the X, um, and and that'll be the new, you know, our new goal um, in your in your, part, in your starting place. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and, and when we, you know, we gave you, we gave you at a high level some uh, detail about that in uh, in April, and and when these when these close, and and we've got good clarity on it, we'll we'll be very transparent about, um, you know, how to reset the baseline and um, and the starting point. Sure. And in terms of you expect some gains on sales, I assume those are you thinking the same lines, and those should probably come in the fourth quarter, is what you're currently thinking. Yeah, they may not all be in the fourth quarter, you know, given how the deals were structured. Like, not 100% of the gains will be in the fourth quarter, but, you know, a good chunk of it uh, will be in the fourth quarter, and obviously we'll uh, we'll be clear on what that was when it happens. Okay. And the last thing for me is, um, you know, if we want to dream about loan growth coming back for the industry, how do we think about how much capacity you have to grow loans while staying under the asset cap, and, and where does that come from? Does it come from cash liquidity? mix and moving other stuff around the balance sheet. Can you just give us some thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we all dream of uh, faster loan growth, so uh, so I think we're aligned there. But the, um, you know, like I, I think we've got plenty of room to grow uh, on the loan side. And, uh, and, and whether it comes from, you know, initially from cash that's sitting at the Fed or, uh, you know, that would be the, kind of the first place. But, you know, if we needed to, we could we could you know uh, reduce the securities portfolio as well. It's, if it grew much faster than what we expected, that would be a nice problem to have. But uh, at this point, we have plenty of capacity to grow. Okay, thanks. Thank you. The next question comes from Ibrahim Punawala of Bank of America. Your line is open. Hey, good morning. I guess just one big picture question, uh, Charlie. I appreciate uh, you mentioning the risk of setbacks as you go through the whole regulatory process. At the same time, when uh, we talk to investors, I think there's a franchise The longer you stay within that asset cap, I was wondering if you could address just in terms of when we think about the franchise, both from a talent and client standpoint, how worried should your shareholders be about that, or do you think that's uh, well taken care of? Well, I think it's – well, I would say I do think it's well taken care of. I'll start there. But I think, you know, we, we think about it um, – we think about it every day that we take actions uh, to stay below the cap. Um, I think, you know, as, as Mike talks, talks talked uh, uh, just spoke about, uh, we have, you know, significant room um, on the asset side of the balance sheet 
which is you know where you really want to be there for clients where they need you. Um, and so when you're out, you know, hustling for business, um, you know, we're certainly able to fulfill their needs. Um, on you know, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a consumer or whether it's a corporate. Um, you know, our experience has been um, that we continue to find ways to optimize the balance sheet in a way that you know has very little client impact. Um, and where we have to uh, uh, move deposits off the balance sheet, uh, we work with customers to um, uh, to come up with other off balance sheet solutions for them. And you know, I think our experience has been that customers are very, very understanding um, of what that is. So again, I think as you know, as we think about, and by the way, we have not limited the growth of deposits on the consumer side at all. Um, so, you know, when we think about, you know, the more long-term impacts, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we certainly would have liked to have been in a different position um, if we had a choice. Um, but we're trying to be very smart about uh, having as little franchise impact as possible when we make these decisions um, and make sure we're communicating with, uh, with customers. And I think the people here at Wells have done an amazing job um, of, of uh, striking that right balance. And as I said, I think, um, you know, we're as open for business as anyone on the asset side, um, and I think customers appreciate that as well. Got it. No, thank you for sharing that perspective. And just one quick one, Mike, uh, on the NII, uh, when we look at the fourth quarter, I hear you on your full-year guidance. Should Does the net-net of all of that imply that fourth quarter NII should at least grow from third quarter levels? And can you disclose what the PPP impact was for the third quarter NII number? Yeah, I think on the on the on the fourth quarter, you know, you can model like you know based on what your assumptions are, right? And as as I said, we'll be sort of near the bottom of the range, and you can sort of pick where you think we'll be based on the you know how you, how you feel about it. You know, I think for third quarter, the PPP impact was about 115 million. Um, and just to give you a little context, that was a little bit lower than what we saw in the second quarter, and we would expect the fourth quarter to be a little bit lower than that potentially, but that will all be based on, you know, how clients, the pace of forgiveness uh, requests that we get from clients. But, but you know, overall, you know, a pretty small, you know, uh, sequential uh, impact. And that's Excellent. all baked Thank into you. our forecast. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. The next question comes from John Pancari of Evercore ISI. Your line is open. Good morning. Um, how, uh, on the expense side, how should we think about the uh, the timing and uh, the magnitude of the remaining uh, 4.3 billion in cost saves? And and would you say that any of the latest regulatory developments impacted how you're thinking about the magnitude or the or the timing of the realization of those saves? Thanks. Yeah, John, Mike. Um, you know, as we as we said in the beginning of the year, we're, we were going to get about you know 3.7 billion of the 8 billion this year, and and the annualized impact starts to build you know as you go through the year. So some of, some of that you get in the run rate you know coming out of uh, 2021, um, and some of that will take you know take more time to get at. Um, and as I mentioned, you know where we have to you know, introduce new technology um, or other new capabilities. It just takes longer to get at some of it. And, and, and as we sort of said in the beginning of the year, you know, this is a multi-year plan. So, we, you know, we're not going to get all of that in the first, uh, you know, first 12 months by, by any stretch. 
you know, and as we get to uh, January, we'll give you a better view of, of what, uh, what, what to expect in uh, 2022. Okay, got it. And then separately on the loan front, can you just maybe give us a little more detail on trends you're seeing in the card business, and, and, and including uh, spending volume as well as payment rates? And then separately, um, any thoughts on the impact of the buy now, pay later product on, on how you're thinking about your product set? Thanks. Um, yeah, you know, I think when you look at payment rates, they're still really high. Like, they bounce around a little bit month to month and, you know, in the last quarter or so, but they're, they're still, you know, really high. Um, and so what you're getting, you know, when you, when you look at the balance growth you're seeing, you're really getting that through an increase in, uh, in, in the point-of-sale uh, purchase volumes that are coming through. You know, Charlie highlighted a bunch of stats, you know, based on what we're seeing in, uh, in the book. But, you know, I'd say, you know, overall – uh, spend patterns, you know, spend is pretty, uh, still pretty strong, um, you know, pretty stable, you know, from what we saw in the second quarter, you know, up, you know, versus, uh, you know, the comparable periods last year or, or uh, in 2019. You know, and as you'd expect in any given week or month or quarter, you know, the different categories move around, um, you know, quite a bit uh, depending on what's happening, you know, for, uh, you know, what's happening, you know, based on uh, that, that, that time period. And then I think when you look at, you know, so you can see that point-of-sale volumes are up 24% from the quarter a year ago, 4% sequentially, um, and you can see the new account growth, which is up quite a bit, 150% from a year ago and 63% from the second quarter based on the new products we've launched. So so we're still, you know, I'd characterize it as still really strong uh, activity levels um, despite, you know, the, the noise you see out there um, related to, you know, uh, the Delta variant and other things. And on the, this is Charlie, on the on buy now, pay later, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I would describe, you know, buy now, pay later, you know, as another option um, of, you know, providing credit uh, and serving the merchant. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think as others have said, it's still overall a relatively small portion of the market. Uh, but I think, you know, there'll be a place for it, but it's not going to supplant all the other types of credit uh, that exist out there. Um, we have our own retail services business. We have our own personal lending business. So, um, and we've got a significant number of merchant relationships ourselves. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a place that we will be in addition to the products that we have. And, you know, over time, um, you know, my guess is it'll continue. It'll, you know, you're seeing a, pl- a proliferation of, of people involved now. At some time, at some point, it will become far more consolidated for all the reasons that these other industries have been consolidated, um, including uh, those that can really provide a differentiated experience for the merchant. Um, so hopefully that helps. No, that does. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Thank you. The next question comes from Matt O'Connor of Deutsche Bank. Your line is open. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, Charlie, I wanted to follow up again on the comment about likely to have additional setbacks on the regulatory stuff, and just to push here for a little bit, if you don't mind, um, is this kind of like a broad risk statement, just in case, like you never know, or should we just be prepared for you know something more meaningful, whether it's a speed bump or potential landmine between you know here and you know specifically the end of the asset cap, which I think you know everyone views as a key key uh, turning point. Yeah, I guess, you know, I would describe it that's this way. I mean, I, I, everyone focuses on the asset cap, um, and I understand all the reasons for that uh, for sure. Uh, and I think just what's important 
to us is that we want to make sure that there's complete transparency, which we believe we have if you read our 10-Q. But also, we want to make sure that you're just thinking about the broad set of things that we're dealing with. And, you know, the reality is the asset cap embedded in the Fed consent order is one very important order, but we still have other consent orders with other agencies, which are still extraordinarily important. We have other inquiries that are in progress that are described in there. And so I just, you know, think it's important that we're completely transparent. It's nothing different than what we've been saying. And, you know, when you talk about speed bump versus landmines, hopefully, you know, we all, you know, work to make sure that, you know, we minimize the likelihood of a landmine. But, you know, as I said before, there's, you know, the interconnectedness and just the pure amount of things that we have to do are complex. Practices that were in place years ago, as well as practices that are in place today, and were judged based upon the overall progress, based upon the initial due dates of some of these things. And so nothing changes my perspective about net-net are we moving forward. I absolutely believe we are. Again, you know, we have the, we're able to see all the internal metrics, every interim date and things like that, which, you know, the outsiders can't see. But, you know, we choose our words very carefully on things like that. And so I just want to make sure that, you know, people understand that we have these things that are out there and don't want you to be surprised if something happens, but it doesn't change our point of view of what the opportunity is and how confident we are about being able to close these things. And as a follow-up, I know you can't tell us what the conversation kind of content is with the regulators, but can you at least tell us, like, do you have, like, the point of the conversation, like, on the ASSA cap, you know, we submitted the plan, you accepted it, like, how long is this going to take? Like, is there, we all just on the outside try to understand, like, what the level of communication is, because I think on some fronts there's a lot of communication, like the OCC, I think, you know, sits in all the banks' offices, so there's a lot of regular communication there. But with the Fed and the ASSA cap, it's kind of like, you know, is there any conversation about it, even if you can't tell us? So a couple of things. First of all, we have, and I think this is not just us, I think this is true of all banks, we have regular conversations with all of our regulators. Absolutely with the OCC, as you say, there are, you know, many examiners in our offices on a regular basis, but we have an extremely open and interactive relationship with the CFPB, with the Fed, with the FDIC, and all other appropriate regulators, including the SEC, FINRA, overseas regulators, and, you know, that is the way we treat the relationships. I have found the Fed to be clear, consistent in their approach to issues that relate to supervision. I think that's just a general comment that I would say. I haven't seen things deviate from that, and as I said, when you look at the consent order, it doesn't say submit a plan and then we'll talk about lifting the asset cap. It describes in there what we have to do, and so you should just assume that there's a, that there is, we have a constant level of engagement, that we're really clear on what we have to do, and we're doing the work to get there. 
Okay, that's helpful, Color. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Gerard Cassidy of RBC. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, Mike, can you share with us, um, your credit quality is very strong, similar to many in the industry. Your net charge off ratio, of course, was an incredibly low 12 basis points. Um, do you have an idea how long you could kind of sustain such a strong level of net charge offs and when you may want, when it may reach a more normalized level sometime, you know, looking out? And then second, your reserves relative to loans, I think, are about 170 basis points. And when we go back to that day one Cecil number that you guys put out in January of 2020, it was about 93 basis points. And that difference, you're about the widest of all your peers. So any thoughts on just where the reserve could go as well? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Gerard. Um, you know, a, a couple things. You know, I think so far uh, we've all, I think, in the industry been wrong about, you know, when credit or how credit, you know, will normalize. Um, and, you know, at, at some point, you know, I think we all expect that we're going to get back to, you know, more normal, more normal uh, charge-off rates. Now, having said that, those, the, the new normal might be different if people, you know, you know keep higher, uh, sustain higher liquidity balances uh, throughout time. So, so I think that's uh, something to still play out. Um, I think, you know, at this point, you know, as Charlie highlighted in his script, we still, people still have high liquidity balances. We're seeing high payout chart, you know, payout. Payoff rates and credit cards and other and other um, you know uh, loans and so so you know there's no reason to think that you know we shouldn't continue to have strong uh, credit performance in the near term. Twelve base it may, it may not be twelve basis points, but it should still be historically um, you know quite strong at least in the in the near near term. And we'll see how it starts to normalize. You know I think as a as a as a you know, uh, let me add one thing on that. I just think. Um, when we think about long-term earnings power of the company, and we talk, think, talk about, you know, our ability to get to, you know, sustainable return numbers, we assume that the charge-off number will go up from there. So, uh, you know, we agree it's extremely low, um, that it won't stay here. And, I, and just as you think about when we think about our returns, we make adjustments for that. And, you know, and so, you know, if, uh, if they do start to rise next year, uh, then you know it's it's you know it'll be hopefully in our assumptions, and if not, then we'll get there sooner maybe. But we'll explain why. Yeah, and, and as it relates to the coverage ratio today, you know, as, as as we've said for the last couple quarters, you know, we we continue to be reserved uh, for a whole different you know a whole number of different scenarios, and um, and it, you know hopefully will prove out to be very conservative relative to what plays out over the over the coming uh, coming quarters. And if we continue to see uh, trends continue, we'll have more we'll have more releases um, as we go. You know, I think you know whether you get back to day one Cecil levels or not. I think is a really almost impossible question to a answer. You know, given it's going to be a function of you know all the variables you, you now have to consider um, and what your outlook is, what the different risks are at that time. And if you go back to you know first quarter of 2020, I think we had what three and a half percent unemployment at that point. Um, and it was a very rose, you know. I think you know, pre-COVID, it was you know, it, it was it was a very uh, you know, very kind of utopian environment. I think from an economic perspective. And so, will we get it back to exactly that that outlook? Hard to say. But um, but I think we continue to think if things play out, we'll have more releases, and that number will go down. Very good. And then as a follow-up, um, can you give us an update in the middle market investment banking initiatives? You know, how successful have you guys been in penetrating your existing customer base? 
Yeah, look, you know, as we've highlighted, Gerard, we think that's a really big opportunity over, you know, over a long period of time. But, it, it, you know, it doesn't happen in a quarter or two. It takes some time to really, you know, make sure that we've got those relationships built out in the way we want. You know, we really started to put some extra focus on it um, in a very disciplined way late last year. Um, so I'd say we're still early. I think we're seeing some, you know, encouraging green shoots, you know, where we've had some opportunities that we've won over the last, uh, you know, few months or a couple quarters that uh, we might not have uh, been in a position to have uh, before that. But it, but this will, it'll take some time to play out. But we do think the opportunity is pretty big. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question comes from Betsy Grassick of Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hi. How are you doing? Um, two questions. One on the branch network. Just wanted to get your updated thoughts on how you see your footprint today, and is there more of an opportunity to expand or to optimize? That's a good question, Betsy. I think um, uh, we're actually doing a bunch of work on exactly what that looks like because, you know, we have been very, very focused on um, – you know, net reductions, given the fact that, you know, we were behind some others. And so, you know, the team has done a great work in just terms of identifying, uh, you know, we'll describe them as just we had a you know, significant number of very obvious um, consolidation opportunities. They're really not closures. We should, they're really consolidation where we have um, the appropriate uh, uh, local coverage. I think, um, you know, the work that we're doing is we is to really think through at this point, um, where we have significant share, where we have less share, but we have enough concentration, what our footprint looks like in some of those places, um, to figure out how uh, we can actually um, reorient the existing number of branches that we have over a period of time. So I think the reality is we will continue to optimize um, because as time goes on, we will continue to need less. We're focused on not leaving communities that need our help without solutions, um, uh, we're going to, you know, certainly wind up with smaller footprints in a lot of the places because uh, branch usage is changing, um, but we will use that as an opportunity to figure out um, how to redeploy some of those resources as well. Okay, and then I have the same question on your wealth platform. I know you recently brought in uh, Barry to run that, and just want to understand the strategy there, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. I think we've got um, the strategy, you know, it falls into uh, uh, kind of four distinct buckets. Um, number one is we have our, uh, you know, think of it as, you know, our independent um, broker channel uh, where, uh, you know, it's the old AG Edwards and businesses like that. We first that came together to form that network. Um, we have then financial advisors that work extremely closely with our bank branches um, and believe that's still a, a relatively untapped opportunity for us. Um, we also have uh, a platform uh, where uh, brokers can actually go in. When I say independent, that was the wrong phrase in the beginning. That's, those, those are people who are employees, but we have a platform where people can actually uh, go independent uh, and continue to, to do the business through us. Uh, and then we have um, our online business, uh, Wells Trade. Uh, and so we've got, you know, those distinct uh, uh, 
different points of distribution, um, and we're focused equally on maximizing the value that existed in all of those. Historically, I think we ran it much more as just one big opportunity, and I think we feel like we um, uh, have underinvested in the online piece and the independent piece for sure. Um, and the uh, bank branch piece uh, is something which we think is just, as I said, just a very meaningful opportunity given the amount of affluent customers that we have in our branch footprint. Thanks. Thanks, Betty. Thank you. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one and record your name. Our next question comes from Vivek Janeja of J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi, Charlie. Um, going to go back to the regulatory consent orders. want to get a sense from you. You know, given the setback we had this quarter with the additional consent order, you've obviously spent a lot on these. You've hired, you've brought in a lot of folks already since you've been there over the last two years, a lot of consultants, a lot of in-house people. So what do you need to do differently, especially you as a management team, to you know, not have uh, you know, more of those setbacks and, and, and to have it go in the direction you were hoping it would go with this? Yeah, yeah I would say, Vivek, um, there's, there's, there's nothing new that we have to do as far as reaching an endpoint. So, so, so if you said uh, pre-consent order or post-consent order, does it change um, what we have to do to build out the right capabilities with the right controls? Um, in this case, in mortgage, the answer is absolutely not. Um, and so, again, whether or not it's being done fast enough um, in the, in the uh, regulators' minds relative to how long some of these things have been going on, uh, you know, which predate many of us, um, that's the context which they need to look at this in uh, because that's, that's who they regulate um, and how they have regulated. So, again, I think for us, uh, and I'm not minimizing a consent order. Consent order is a very big deal. But the work that's embedded in there, um, the end state, is the same end state that we would have contemplated building ourselves. And so, you know, there's some more, you know, a lot more formality. That's, that's part of the process now. Uh, you know, and the OCC will be more deeply involved in a series of the checkpoints and things like that. Uh, um, and there, you know, certainly is some more work that comes out of an exercise like that, but the end state is the same. And so when you say several years, Charlie, I, I, you know, should we be thinking of that in terms of is it a three-year time frame, is it a five-year time frame? Just because you're right, we've all been dealing with this before you got there, so it has already been five-plus years. So, you know, any, any sense of, you know, direction there? I think, listen, I don't want to, again, I believe, I, 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 in the perfect world, we'd lay out all of our plans uh, for everyone, but we're obviously not in a position to do that. And I think um, what I would just encourage you to do is look at, uh, you know, the things that we've closed. Um, hopefully, you'll continue to see progress as we look forward, and you'll be able to draw judgments based upon that. Um, um, and... You know, relative to you know what it means for our business, as I said, we still you know have a fair amount of flexibility um, in order for us to grow fee-based businesses and grow businesses that require uh, um, balance sheet usage on the asset side. Um, 
So I think uh, uh, I, I just I, I just I can't give you any more specificity other than we don't want to mislead people. Um, and it's not as if we're not thinking about the future. And so, you know, again, we're you know, try and be very uh, careful not to weigh too much on, you know, one side or the other. Uh, but we've got a lot of people here that serve customers every day. And every single person isn't working on a consent order. Many are. We've got a huge amount of resources that are dedicated to it. But as you see, you know, we're building products in the card business. We're building products in our, uh, you know, in our retail services business. We're doing the same across the digital platforms across the company. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and as we execute on these items, um, you build the confidence of the regulators. So it's not as if you have to wait until everything is completely done to be able to, you know, continue to move forward, not just with your confidence, but with their confidence as well. And so hopefully in terms of the progress that we believe we're making, um, we're, you know, that's what we're seeing. And so, you know, you'll see us put all the resources towards these things to, you know, minimize the time frame, but get them done properly at the same time that we're moving the business forward. Thanks, Johnny. At this time, we have no further questions, and I'd like to turn the call back over to management. Great. Well, listen, thank you all for the time today. We appreciate it, and, you know, we're all here to um, answer any follow-up questions you have. Take care. Thank you for your participation on today's conference call. At this time, all parties may disconnect.